And we have a responsibility to also role model all of those behaviors that you want to see. And I think all of those things are the essence at plus one more, which is a uh, talent density and hiring great talent. Like, all of that <laughs> is the prerequisite for you to be able to say, yeah, you know what? Teams should run wild a little bit. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Iwei Ang, Chief Product Officer at Talabat and Delivery Hero, the largest online food ordering company in the Middle East. Now, Iwei is on a mission to create product-led organizations that are customer-obsessed, data-driven, and experimentation-focused. He wants to leverage the power of technology to solve customer problems and the company's challenges. He wants to focus on the long-term and not get stuck in quarter-to-quarter targets, but adapt to the markets at the speed at which they learn. He's lived in six different countries, led teams from 20 more, and was responsible for Talabat's rapid growth throughout the Middle East, Asia, Africa, and more. On this show, you'll get a very unique insight in what it takes to lead teams all over the world, enter new markets, and create product-led businesses. But before that, let's hear how he got started. When I was about seven or eight, my uncle on my, my mother's side was doing his undergrad in computer science. And I happened to be around and I was observing, back in the days, I guess, a terminal of sorts or a, an editor of sorts where he was punching in a bunch of code and, and something came out on the other end. And that for me was an aha moment around the ability for us as humans and as people to be able to put something in text and be able to create something out of that, that works, that does something, that you can get it to move and and do things. And that for me was an aha moment where I told myself at the time, like, this is the coolest thing that I've ever seen. So when I was 10 or 11, I started programming. I started learning how to code. I started playing around with computers. And since then, I knew that I wanted to do something in tech. I knew that I wanted to create. I knew that I wanted to build. And I kept working at that. Then when I got to undergrad, things changed a little bit. I initially came in as a computer engineer, but then found a sweet spot where I was doing a course on a subject matter that I'd never thought about ever in my life. It was called Human Factors Engineering. And wow, that's uh, wow. Yeah, Yeah, right. It's like the coolest topic in the world now as well. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, exactly. So this is this is human factors engineering. And I remember back in the days, this was before, you know, the Web 2.0 boom and things like that. And before it became hot, human factors engineering at the time, we were talking about examples of designing airplane cockpits and, and production floors and how you minimize mistakes and errors and pilot mistakes. And there were so many case studies of how human errors, whether in a medical context or airline context, cause fatalities. And then it struck me that, okay, what I really wanted to be in was not just technology, but connecting technology with solving real human problems. And the intersection between humans and technology is that sweet spot, which I wanted to say, okay, I'm going to go into UX and research. So I spent actually my first job ever in a role at IBM doing UX research. I joined their DB2 team, which for those who know is is IBM's database product. And I was designing experiences on their terminal. So what happens if you have a database that needed a three-day backup and you got into work and you're like, is this backup happening or not? Like, is it working or not? 
And my job was to design experiences in the terminal that showed the administrator the, hey, it worked. So that's how I ended up in, in the sphere of sort of the intersection between humans and technology. It's and, fascinating uh, to hear you share that, especially human factors and resilient systems engineering. is That's the frontier of DevOps now. So you have people like John Allspaugh who went and did this. There's a famous course in Lund University where people go and do this master's, which is all about human factors and resilient systems engineering. And, you know, you've got everybody there from like the leaders at Netflix to doctors to physicians all talking about how to create safe systems or how to deal with human error or how to create responsive or robust and resilient systems. And I actually got a chance to actually go to one of the workshops that they held for the last course here when we could be in person. It was actually held at Slack's offices and it was one of the most fascinating three days I think I spent in my life just like listening to doctors talk about the resiliency of bone and then have John Allspaugh talk about how they did use the same principles to start doing 50 deployments a day at Etsy and all about this sort of systems safety engineering. And I was just like, my mind just exploded. So it's fascinating that you found your way into something like that because it's so important now as we're building these really complex systems, not that they are perfect, but they are responsive or they were robust and resilient. They can respond to change because theirs is so complex, right? Like we can't simplify things. We have to manage the complexity. And I noticed some the shades of that I see even in the product work and your own journey, which is kind of fascinating to hear how that has sort of played out for yourself over time. It's one of the things that I think is still underplayed today in the product world. It's still one of the foundations that I highly encourage product people to go through, which is understanding humans <laughs> at the heart of it, right? What are our limitations? What can we remember? What can't we remember? And remembering that, you know, at the end of the day, like if we think about what great design is and great experiences are, it's not just it's beautiful. How the thought process that goes behind every decision you make, every text that you put in is anchored on the end user. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Yeah, no, I love when these dots get joined because, you know, we had Casey Roanhall on the show who led the chaos team at Netflix, right? And has created this field of chaos engineering and was actually the person who brought me to this Lund University workshop. And all of those folks are just so deep into, you know, resilient systems engineering and human factors for safety and, and systems design for these like, all the systems that run Netflix. So their idea of the chaos monkey that sort of randomly shuts down services in their architecture so they can make it more resilient. You know, like they just turn off AWS in Europe and see if they can reroute all the traffic to North America. So when we're watching Netflix, it doesn't skip. You know, like that's the way they're thinking about, as you say, the design. It's not just, does it look pretty? It's like, can it respond to unplanned exceptions or... And I think it's really fascinating when, you know, when you, I can see this as you bring it, build it into your own sort of product career, right? You're not only thinking about, does it look nice? You're deep into the, why does it affect the user, the language, the words, bring the teams together. So share a little bit like how you've brought that to life, because like, yes. you know, you've spent time in Microsoft working on the Visual Studio team, which is fascinating. And then teaching people obviously through General Assembly before you sort of 
have gone into working for Trey Geico and, and, and all these different companies about building all these different types of products and really growing them, like significantly growing them from, you know, scaling these up from a couple of hundreds, like, you know, to millions of users. So share some like the things that have been on your sort of leadership journey to chief product officers now at like Talibat and, you know, like leading these like product leaders of product leaders type scenarios. Like what have been some of the transitions that you've had to unlearn or shift along that path? Quite a lot. I think one of the beautiful parts about being able to, I've been fortunate enough to move to different countries, to work in different contexts and different environments, is that every time I move and, and physically uproot myself and, and move to a new place, it also is an opportunity to hit the reset button. I often do a, a deep retrospective to say, whether it's in my personal life, whether it's in my health and fitness, whether it's my work, how do I want to do things differently? I've now also tried to fold that, okay, say, okay, if I physically don't want to move, how do I still make sure that I continue in that routine, whether on a quarterly basis, to really start reflecting back? And I have a set of questions that I ask myself to make sure that across work, across my personal life, I really think through things and, and how I can change. And it's funny because now I, I have a couple of people on my team who've actually been with me since my very early product leadership days at Trade Gecko. And, you know, uh, worked with me then and worked with me now. And maybe as you speak with some of these people, you, they, they'll tell you about how my leadership style has really changed. Leadership and product is a very tricky one because product in one hand is a very, very young and new discipline. So the Absolutely, definitions yeah. of what a great product leader is and how to do great product leadership is still relatively young and undefined. Where it is now, I still think that we're somewhere in between and we're learning and we're learning a couple of tactics. We're learning a couple of methodologies. We, we're seeing some best practices. We're, I'm now debating some best practices with, with some of the best product leaders out there. But, you know, it's not like we've had 100 years of tried and tested methodology of, of how we should be running product. Absolutely, yeah. Very early on in my career, one thing that I knew I did want, I didn't want to build a product organization that was all just about being a feature factory and pumping out as much code as possible and just feature after feature after feature. I knew that I wanted to build an organization or organizations that had people who were passionate about problems, passionate about problem solving and, and could really go deep in customer problems, solve these complex systems and problems like you were, you were alluding to. One of the biggest things that I had to unlearn though was that as much as I wanted people to, to feel like they could drive and they could have a lot of autonomy and they could move fast and, and make a lot of independent decisions is that I interpreted that early on in my product leadership career that that meant complete freedom and autonomy and what I call today kumbaya leadership, where as a PM, you decide. You decide what do you think the company's biggest priorities are that you can contribute to and what you think the team should work on and how you want to organize the team. Go forth and drive. And as weeks gone by and months gone by, what I've noticed was two symptoms, right? One, we were very misaligned in the efforts that we were going through. You know, one team was working on something, another team was working on something, and this didn't seem to have a compounding effect to add on to each other's work. And secondly, we made commitments that we were constantly missing, both of which were a bit concerning. As I started maturing and thinking a little bit harder about it, we were fortunate enough to have a dinner with Marty Kagan uh, when he came to Dubai a couple of years ago, when we hosted him here, where something that he said really struck me, which is something along the lines of people are not looking for less management they're looking for better management. And it really struck a chord that, first of all, being a product leader is a lot of work. First, recognize that and be okay with that. And find a way to build the environment, the context, have the right critical mass of talent, and a lot of ingredients that need to come into play 
that allows the teams to really run as quickly as they can and make a lot of decisions and learn as quickly as they can and pivot as much as they can, but in the context and with sufficient context and direction. That's a very key thing that I've grown over the last couple of years in. Happy to share a few more examples of how this is sort of well, it, it uh, resonates showing up. Massively. Yeah, no, it resonates massively. It's one of these things sometimes where people hear the stories about teams are autonomous and they make decisions for themselves and they can they make all the choices. And it almost sounds mythical, I think, sometimes about this sort of environments where like, how can people be so free flowing with no constraints in a way? It's sometimes it's a danger, right? Because I think what you're already alluding to, or what you learned as well, is that part of being a leader is actually setting some constraints, getting people to commit to delivering things. And sure, give them the space to be expressive and bring their ideas to life. But innovation needs constraints and teams need commitments to be held to actually build more trust and deliver things for each other. And I think sometimes I think we fall into a little bit of a trap of making it sound like people can do what they want. That's not the case. Share a little bit more like about how you've managed yourself to find that strike that balance between structure and systems but still give people space to operate and be creative within. So they do feel like they are contributing to where they want to go, but it's still giving you the the opportunity to set the direction and the sort of guide rails which to operate in. Yeah, 100%. So the first thing I had to do was to take a step back and think a little bit about what is it that I wanted? What is it that in a product organization I really wanted to see? A couple of things came to mind, right? First of all, it's very clear that I did want to have an organization that was what I call top-down micromanaged. A lot of people in, misinterpret what I'm saying as, as saying, oh, well, if you don't want to give autonomy, then it must be that you tell everyone exactly what features. Right, it's the other went. end of the spectrum. It's, yeah, it's right. the other yeah, end of the yeah. spectrum. And I, it's completely not that at all. So I, I want to be you know, very clear. And that was the first thing I wanted to line the sentences. What I don't want is I don't want an organization that is micromanaged. That It's not like they're getting the OKRs, you know, straight front and center. They're getting bunch of features that the business needs to build. Not that, right? I also did want an organization that was just a feature factory where it's the business going, I want this feature, this feature, this feature, this feature. So a couple of things that I did want, not top-down micromanagement, building an organization where you have a bunch of people that are very close to the problem and trusting the team that are close to the problem to be able to solve that problem. But the picking of the problem and the focus on the problem is very important. And thirdly is focus, right? Too many product organizations especially if you let the team sort of say, pick any problem that you want to solve, suffer from the problem that they have eight different areas that they could potentially jump in. And they're constantly looking at eight different areas and they're spreading themselves too thin. And and as an organization, you're not giving them enough sort of protection and, and guardrails to say, you know what, like if you want to pick a problem and go down on it, let's leave the seven aside and let's give you that that ability to stay focused on that, that one problem to solve. That's very powerful. And as I think about building product organizations, those are the things that I, I sort of have in mind as the framework for what I think we should design for. I was going to say as the a, focus yeah. one is, is a great one. It's probably one of the most counterintuitive things probably in all any sort of building products, right? Like our, the ability to actually give teams to sort of say, instead of trying to focus on 10 things, just do one thing and find out if it's a thing worth doing or not doing. And it's very hard, right? Because the natural inclination, and it's like this notion of limiting work in progress, right? If we have a list of 10 things, people will still try and do all the 10 things on the list at the same time and get nothing done versus saying, right, we've 10 things on this list. What's the first most important? Let's do something. 
get a result and decide, do we keep doing it or move on? And we never seem to do that. So as a, definitely as a chief product officer, you do have a finite amount of resources and time and people and things to explore. How do you strike that balance with your teams? Like, what are some of the examples from working with the teams where, you know, you were able to help them just sort of actually keep the focus to like get a result that helped you make the next decision to say, do I keep doing this? Do I stop doing this? Do I do something different? This is a very, very interesting point that you tackled. One thing that I've observed, the symptom I've observed in many companies that I've been in is that the business has a bunch of different asks. That's very common. The customers are asking for a bunch of different things as well. And that makes focusing very hard extremely hard. And there's a bit of a fear of missing out factor to say, no, 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 don't just focus on this one thing, like tackle these 10 things as well. The thing that often we don't spend enough time on, and I believe is that the crux of product leadership is the ability for product leaders to help the team pick the one thing that actually matters. And I think that's very important. Debate to say, out of these 10 things, let's actually find the biggest lever for us to actually chase down. And as I'm learning, as I'm growing in, in product leadership as well, I, I'm also observing that the, what the business is often most uncomfortable with uh, or what the business is most uncomfortable with is not picking the right problems to solve. That they're <laughs> afraid that you go down six months down the road and you're solving a problem that, oh, well, actually, like this is another pool of things that, that, that we should be focusing on instead. And as I think about what better management is and better leadership is, it's about setting concepts. It's about... First of all, really building a strong conviction as a product leader about what that context is. Longer term, where are we headed as a company? Where are we headed as a product? A very clear vision and direction that you want to go in and working backwards to say, okay, what are the two or three levers that really will help us get there? That is how we achieve focus as opposed to saying, okay, I'm just going to pick one and I'm just going to chase it down. But how? what is the rationale behind that? That debate and that strong rationale and the strong data backing and experimentation that led you to that point is something that as product leaders, we should be really focusing on time on. So bring this to life in an example for us. You know, you've worked in Delivery Hero at Talibat. You're now in Talibat, like you're running the whole show basically, right? So, and this is solving like opening in new markets all throughout the Middle East and into Asia, into Europe, different cultures, different constraints, different government laws. Like this is complex stuff. And culturally dealing with different teams and offices that are all based in these locations. So how do you square those circles? How are you helping those teams, give them the help and the direction that context that they need of the wider company, but also understanding like locally there's differences. Maybe you can share some anecdotes of the examples of like what's different about operating in Egypt as opposed to the UAE, as opposed to Turkey or because I don't think many people get that type of product insight. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because that's exactly kind of the example I was going to use, where we have markets that operate very differently. We have markets with very different purchasing power. We have markets that are very different in maturity and tech adoption and credit card adoption and buyer behavior. The way that we look at it is we often split it into, you know, I tell my product team, look, the three sort of ends of the spectrum. You have Kuwait, where we've operated the longest and it's one of our largest markets that we have a strong presence since so a lot of history on the Taliban brand has been, it's a bit of an institution. That's a different kind of market. Uh, on the other hand, you have the UAE, which is the most probably technologically advanced market in the markets that we, we operate. Also very strong competition. There's a lot of players in here and we're constantly pushing ourselves to really be the 10 out of 10, you know, when it comes to the, the brand new kind of experiences and services that we provide. And on the other end of the spectrum, you know, we have been in Egypt for a while now. 
Egypt is a very different country, much larger, much bigger footprint, many different smaller tier cities that, that, that we're entering ourselves into. And with a consumer behavior that arguably is very different than the, perhaps more of the expats in the UAE. We recently also opened in Iraq, where there are compliance regulations. You know, we have to do KYC when people sign up for the product. It really is very, very different. Now, the challenge with building an organization or a product across all these different, different markets is that when you try and paint it with one brush, you often just get a bit of an average product across everywhere. Yeah, I imagine. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it's extremely challenging. And sometimes the inclination is to say, okay, fine, like maybe the way they would deal with it would just get all these markets together and get them to submit a bunch of requests. And we figure out like, okay, what are the points of commonality? What's everyone asking for the most? And let's ship that. Yeah. So that's, I think, the way I look at it, the easy way out. The harder conversation to have is, okay, of all these markets, what's burning? Like what's strategically most important for us? What do we double down on? So to give you an example, you know, when we looked at all the different markets and where operationally we needed a bit more attention to it. And one thing that we were looking at is, you know, when, when restaurants were getting the orders, what percentage of orders went through and they successfully processed it versus the, the ones that had issues. Initially, we were like, okay, let's, let's look at this problem holistically across all of our markets and solve it for all of the different markets. Then we said, how is it possible that, you know, we have one product manager that sits in a country and has to do all of this work for all of these different markets, look at all the data for all these different markets and solve it holistically in a quarter, right? And, and really make a difference. <laughs> yeah. and, and we asked the question, are we better off just picking one market, one problem and really owning it? And we decided that's exactly what we would do. We yeah. would pick a market, the market that had the most, that had its, the largest challenges. In this case, it was Egypt, which is you know, one of our fastest growing markets. And let's go in there. Let's dig deep. Let's speak to restaurants. Let's physically go to restaurants and see what, what they do to process the orders. Why is it that they're taking so long to process the orders? Is it a staffing problem? Is it, you know, do we have a connection problem? Is it because, ah, the internet connection in some parts of Egypt is a bit spotty. So instead of using a a Wi-Fi connection, we should be giving our pretty 4G SIM card so that the orders can trans be transmitted a bit more reliably. Those are the things that you can only get to if you have yeah. the level of depth and focus. Detail. That's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fabulous. Just I love these stories, right? Because it, it brings it to life to people. You can only learn that. You can look at the data all day, but you can only learn that you might need to actually give people 4G cards for their restaurants to have better connectivity to take orders by going there. Like you can only, that's, yeah. you can only learn it by talking to them. You can look at order orders all day and go, mm, okay, there's, but you cannot learn what your insight there until you go spend time with people. Exactly. So this is what it takes to get focused, right? So first on the, on the business side, really agreeing that, hey, guys, like, where we're really hurting is this market in this area. Okay, so let's go solve that problem and sort of put everything else on ice. So agreeing on the business side that that's what we should be focusing on and giving the team the room to go deep, right? Aligning to that principle where the people closest to the problem should solve it and giving them the leeway to say, this is now your problem for three months and go nuts. Anything that you need to do, you need to pivot, you need to make quick decisions, go forth, right? But teams are only able to do that if they have sufficient context saying this is the most important problem. Focus and the trust that leadership empowers them to say, go, this is it. We want you guys to, to really own this. Yeah, no, I, I love hearing these stories. They're the best, you know? And so what other things then have you noticed even then as an organization? Being in Talibat now for like a number of years, you obviously started off in Delivery Hero and have now moved on to lead the actual organization from a product perspective. What are some of the changes you've seen in yourself, in the company, Maybe as opposed to when you were do working in property or what sort of do you find is, is sort of the unique things about bringing like amazing foods to everybody all over 
and all these amazing markets that you operate within. Like, what, what are some of the, the sort of unlearning things you're seeing there? My experience at Taliban has been nothing short of really, like I've enjoyed every moment of it. I, I've been here a year and a half in the Delivery Hero uh, group. And one thing that amazes me is the scale at which this company operates in, right? We operate as Delivery Hero across many, many different countries with the belief that, you know, if we have these entities like Talibat inside of a market, we can really win it and serve our customers better because all these entities are really close to the problem. I joined the organization when we had about 100 people in product and tech. Uh, we're now about 250 and looking to grow to about 400 at the end of the year. So we, we're, we're wow. growing really fast and with yeah. aggressive ambitions. And what's been impressing me about where we're at is and where the company is the ambition. When I joined, we were a food delivery company. Now we are a quick commerce company and we really believe in being able to deliver things to you in 20 minutes or less. And, and I still get messages from friends going, did I really just get my groceries in 15 minutes? What really impressed me about the company and, and still today I have a hard time wrangling my head around is the complexity of all the things that to be in place for this to happen. The technology that needs to go into it, but also the operational complexity that needs to go behind it. This is the first company I've worked in that's so operationally heavy. I've worked at companies like Microsoft and IBM and, and TradeGecko and Property Finder, where the product was basically a software product. Like if you made a change, you put it live and yeah. people use it yeah. and you see the improvements tomorrow. But that's not the case here, right? Like I can, I can in my app, say we do a three-minute delivery, but you know, uh, if we don't have drones that deliver it to you in three minutes, like it's not going to happen. So like we move physical goods. So that intersection between technology and the real world is a real interesting challenge for us. Absolutely, it pushes yeah. you to really innovate, not just on, on tech and, and what you can do in the software, but also in the real world, like really challenging ourselves of assumptions and, and digging deep into why is it that we can't do delivery in 10 minutes? Okay, what, what did it take for us to do that? You know, breaking it down to the key factors and solving it operationally as well. So what, what I love about the business and, and this new challenge is that constant push and pull between what do we solve with product? What do we solve operationally? And odds are both need to, to really have a big leap in order to serve our customers in a very different way. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Like I think when you're building type of businesses that you're leading, the software is, it's just one component. It's a whole supply chain that you're trying to manage there and optimize. And ultimately, the customer looks to you. That's their interaction point, right? The software, whatever it is, the application that they use, like that's who they get frustrated with. You know, if the delivery mechanism breaks down or the food is cold or whatever it is, like they, they don't get mad at the restaurant. They get mad at the people Absolutely. who, who interconnect. <laughs> who deliver right? the food. So, yeah. <laughs> You know, this is a very interesting point you brought up because it really speaks to, uh, I've, been, I've been talking a lot about the concept of product-led organizations. And this is a, a term now that seems to be thrown around a lot. And I guess everyone has a slightly different interpretation of it. But the way I'm interpreting it and the way I'm pushing for and driving my goal of building product-led organizations is one where we use technology and product to solve these problems end to end. Right. I believe that if you apply the right technology to logistics, apply the right technology to how we pick things in stores, apply the right technology to the consumer experience, to uh, how the customer care team answers, answers requests, like there's an opportunity to really solve things you know, for different parts of the journey. But more importantly, that a product-led organization doesn't mean that I'm in the driving seat. I don't need to be in the driving seat, but it's the mindset to say, first of all, let's recognize that people don't care about your departments. They care about the end-to-end cycle, the journey from the time to make an order to when the driver appears in the door. And secondly, we have an opportunity to really tie that entire journey together. 
and solve that holistically, whether it's using data or experimentation methodologies across operations and across the product, across you know what, what we do. And I think that's really exciting. And, and that's one of the biggest changes that we've, we've seen at Talabad over the last year and a half is, is that mindset shift towards let's solve things, a bunch of things operationally and just put more people in the problem to how do we automate? How do we use tech to really start shaving things down? Yeah, no, it's fascinating. It's just it's seeing, again, the scope and the breadth that you get to think about as well. You know, like it's even interesting as you describe that as a product-led organization as well, because most people, I think, who are in the product practice, most are thinking about an app, right? They're building a website and an app. And I think the f- components you're thinking about are an entire business, really. The operational excellence, the the applications to support delivery staff, to support the restaurants, to support customers who are purchasing from the restaurants and using sort of your platform as a way to make that happen, right? And, you know, the benefit being that you get to actually synthesize all this data and see really interesting patterns to innovate, but it's hard to bring all these worlds together of customer demand, operational excellence, business performance, building out a market, attracting more players onto the platform, be it new restaurants, be it new delivery drivers, be it new. Like there's a lot of moving parts there. So as, as you're looking ahead then sort of to the, the future of this space, right? Like you've alluded to like Telebot, you see it as actually a more like w- well beyond just food delivery services, right? Like you're starting to play in other spaces. So share a little bit about what you're sort of excited about or the things uh, where your head is going as you think about the next incarnation of this business and you leading it? Yeah, 100%. Food delivery continues to be the core of our business. It's been, we've been around in the food delivery business for a long time now. We still think there's a lot of problems to be solved there. Different occasions that you can solve for. Perhaps, you know, how do you do things like, you know, as people come to the office, how do you make food more affordable if people want to group buy food? You know, we believe that in the food space as well, dine out. As restaurants open up, continues to be a very interesting problem, perhaps in a different context now, as people uh, don't necessarily want to order with physical menus and they're looking for affordable options. And how do we do that? Now we're experimenting in a, and launching in a couple of countries, the ability for people to get one-for-one deals in restaurants and be able to pay with a QR code, sort of contactless. We're dabbling from an online food delivery space to also an offline experience. I think that's, that's really interesting. But secondly, in the world of quick commerce, yeah, so not just delivering food, but in delivering anything around you. Groceries is just a starting point around a five kilometer radius and as quickly as physically possible to you. We believe that there are many different instances of this uh, are really interesting. We launched groceries very, very uh, prominently over the last year, year and a half, where our value proposition is we can get groceries to you in 20 minutes or less. But we also believe that this extends to many other verticals. We also launched pharmacies recently, yeah, where yeah, especially yeah, in this it. context, it's important. You know, when I was when I was uh, down sick and in, in my bed, and I was like, "Oh, I really need a a Panadol." Being able to order on pharmacy and have that delivered to me in thirty minutes when I was feeling very very down was a life changing experience. You know, you yeah. don't have to you know mask up and drive to the pharmacy and take an hour and come back. And we really believe that these are really uh, opportunities to help enable people and bring a lot of autonomy back into their lives. And so we really want to double down to that space. The quick commerce space is huge. There's so much opportunity to to think about all the different things that are in your proximity that that can be brought to you. That's where it is for now, but I can promise you that the ambitions are every year. We'll find very, very new and exciting spaces for things to expand into and to serve our customers better. 
Yeah, no, it's fabulous. I just love seeing what you're doing. I think the scope, the scale, the say, like uh, different markets, different products. It's fascinating to hear the sort of things that you're doing. If there's one little bit of insight then that you would share, what do you see? You know, you've mentioned on the show, you've sort of had your incarnation many times of your first version of yourself as a product leader, your your latest version. What what do you see the next sort of horizon is for you that, that you think you want to try challenge yourself to evolve to? I think the journey is not done. We're now just in the beginning, in my opinion, of really building an organization that maximizes for context. Over the last year, I've been really obsessed about trying to find ways to bring our teams closer to the business and closer to uh, our customers. I shared at Mind the Product a couple of months ago, the, the concept of having a concept of a business partner that actually sits with the squad to say, look, I, I don't want to be the middleman between the business and, and the product organization and, and the product teams and the product organization. Instead, let's find a way to bring that closer, to reduce the cycles and, and transition times and learnings. Because the reality is, you know, we want to learn as quickly as we can on the business as we do on the product side. So how do we bring that closer together? The second thing that I'm also trying to challenge and Khaled uh, Rashad, our CTO, was the one to really pioneer and think about this and, and, and push our thinking. We spent some time with John Cutler recently as well to, to think about the concept of flow, right? How do you really maximize for flow, for learnings? And, and as you were mentioning, like limiting work in progress so that the teams can really focus. And if you have focus, that's where maximum amount of learning really comes through. And as you optimize for flow of, of work, that's when things come out. That's where you learn the fastest. That's where you also get an opportunity to make sure that the next set of inputs are, are really valuable. So that's the next set of things that we want to optimize for, right? Where we're really challenging to say, well, what happens if you set a quarterly OKR and two weeks in, you have a big learning that says that, ah, mm, I should really pivot. How do we design a system that is not so rigid that says, oh, well, you've already committed to these OKRs, come back again in, in 10 weeks and we can, we can debate the next set of OKRs. But how do we provide that level of flexibility to allow the organization to organically say, these are very, very important bets. And as we have these bets, how do we pivot our way to make sure that you know, we get to the outcome that we, that we want to? I think we're very early days in that. And what I want to obsess about is building the culture that allows for this learning, building this culture of unlearning as well, and shedding a lot of the weight of, of things that don't work, and building that culture where, where we have that obsession over the customer context and, and things like that. And to give you an example of that, I think it's important to try my best to role model some of this stuff. As much as my calendar allows, and, and I'm trying my best to protect this time, is to also do customer calls every week, right? So we have nine different markets. You know, we have a bunch of different customers. I try and speak to individual customers. You know, we set up time in half an hour, ask them about their last about experience. What was it like? And it's so interesting to hear about why people use it. Oh, I was really busy at work and I ordered lunch. Or, oh, I had a birthday party and I was ordering for that. Oh, I really needed tomatoes for a dish I was cooking and I didn't have it. That's why I ordered Talabat. And learning about, ah, this didn't go well, this went well, and here's if, what I would do if I had a magic wand. It keeps you grounded. And I'd love to see more of that in the organization. So I think it's still day one for us. We have a lot to do. And as we scale you know, the organization and continue doubling in size to permeate this culture and permeate this way of thinking, it's exponentially harder. And that's, that's what I want to obsess about. Well, I'll tell you what, it's, it's pretty energizing just listening to you talk about this stuff. Your passion for it, it flows through you. So... You can see both what you're going to do and the teams you're going to work with are going to be successful. So keep it up. Love your spending time with customers every as much as you can. I think it's just so important. And it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Yue, for sharing 
all your great stories, examples and insights. I'm looking forward to having you in the show again in the future to hear what you're, how you get on with the next sort of few steps. Thank you, Barry. Glad to be here.